0: Hello and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where, once again, we find ourselves asking, where are these people getting all of these babies to sacrifice anyway? I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. Man, we're not even making it past the cold open with the shit anymore, are we? You know, what can I say? The French are dramatic as hell. also immediately start singing the theme song in your head after you finish the cold open uh sometimes um this time i just started looking at that dragon fruit dragon again and (laughs) it's kind of where i am i mean that's where we all want to be in the arms of a giant fuzzy dragon fruit dragon yes could go for a dragon drink right now y'all had that shit delicious a dragon drink yeah from starbucks no Mm. I just, I can't not get coffee while I'm at Starbucks. It's got to be something, you know, extra sugary. I mean, the, the dragon drink would would fall under that. Um, yeah, but like caffeine sugary. Yeah, this is a mango dragon fruit um, with coconut milk and chunks of uh, freeze-dried dragon fruit. It does sound good. And dope as hell. It's great for like the late afternoon when you're like, oh, I'm near a Starbucks, but I also want to sleep <laughs> later. Because <laughs> um, otherwise I just get a vanilla soy latte. Unless it's Christmas. Then it's a peppermint vanilla soy latte. Anyway, so uh, we're talking about the French. Yes. I wanted to cover a couple of really big French scandals that neither of them are really. uh, They're not quite enough for their own episodes, but I wanted to talk about both of them. And so here we are. I love how they call um, them the affair of whatever, because it makes it it does like make it sound it like does, everyone is wearing a big wig. Yes, it does make it sound extra fancy. And of course, you know, it's it's all happening in Versailles, so it's double fancy. Um, as I texted to Emily last night, this is an episode about a really, a lot of really fascinating women and like a few guys who are just kind of horny. Which, again, most of history explains most of history. Speaking of sources for this uh, Wikipedia, historyextra.com, historydaily, history.com, lots mm-hmm. of histories, uh, and also headstuff.org. I mean, I'm glad that. It was mostly histories, and it wasn't like the Smithsonian Institute. I mean, I was going to make a joke about TMZ, but that's probably already dated. Uh, TMZ's still a thing? Is Perez Hilton still a thing? Because that was the... Page 10? Are we... Page 6, you mean? Oh, page 6. Sorry. I don't know what page 10 is. Movie listings. The four pages after. Remember when they used to put movie times in the newspaper? (laughs) I also remember when we had... (laughs) When we wanted to go to the movies, we would just call the movie theater and they would tell us what time the movies are at. They usually had like a recording, but... Movie phone. Yeah. God, so old. Love it. Oh, that's what I was... The guy that plays Steven Stranger Things is fucking 31 years old. He looks 12. (laughs) Sorry. I think he looks a little bit older than 12. Okay. He definitely still pulls off like young, 20-something. He looks like he is an appropriate age to be doing what he's doing but yeah a bitch is 31 yeah that doesn't surprise me all the kids are like 20 now which i mean of course yeah like the passing of time you're just gonna have to work around that but uh will is still a teeny tiny little baby they're all little babies though i will say going from season four back to season one (laughs) is a little bit of a transition (laughs) what are all these gnomes doing in the show literal babies Literal tiny infants. All right. So we're going to start with the big one, the Affair of the Poisons, which already just sounds very salacious, doesn't it? There's a very cool lady involved in this one, isn't there? There are many cool ladies, honestly. So the Affair of the Poisons was one of the most sensational criminal cases to come out of the court of King Louis XIV. Otherwise known as the Sun King, otherwise known as he was the guy who built Versailles. Or, well, he turned Versailles into what it is. Is he the one that's the longest ruling monarch in history? He is, in fact, the longest ruling monarch in history. I really hope Queen Elizabeth, like, <laughs> beats surpasses his ass. Well, she I would love just, to see that. She just, like, slid into second, because when I <laughs> checked the other day, like, on the day of her Jubilee, she was, like, a week away from beating, I think, some Russian dickhead longest serving monarch in history i mean i know it's him but i also want to see how far away she is okay she's in third i thought she was in second oh then she will be very soon so um louis the 14th of france 72 years 110 days a name i cannot pronounce i'm very sorry from thailand is currently in second at 70 years, 126 days, Elizabeth II is currently sitting at 70 years, 123 days. Now, okay. when the last time this Wikipedia page got updated, who knows? I'm not going to do the math. That's what I was thinking. Like, she's but, very, very close. Yes. She, if she hasn't already, she is within days, minutes, hours even. Let's hope she lives that way. <laughs> I'm rooting for her. The scandal uh, in- unfolded between... sit. 1677 and 1682, and it implicated a number of prominent noblemen, including those in Louis XIV's immediate circle, on charges of poisoning and witchcraft, and it eventually led to the execution of 36 people. I'm noticing We're- a theme. <laughs> We're sort of doing a little bit of witch hunt again. Not to the same degree. It's really more about sex. Um, <laughs> well. More or less. So it all starts, oddly enough. With the death of an army captain named Godin de Saint, Cro- Saint Croix, Croix, really hard not to say Croix in 1672. The, the Seltzer guy. Yeah. The, we're just going to call him Saint Croix. <laughs> and that's doubly hard for me because not only of La Croix, but like we have the Saint Croix River between Minnesota and Wisconsin. So like I'm still very used to like the butchered Midwestern, Midwestern way to say that. So I'm very sorry. Yeah. You guys really fucked that one up. I will just be mispronouncing all the French names in this episode because my tongue does not make those sounds. I'm sorry. So Godin had already been deeply in debt and his assets were seized by creditors. And among his possessions, they found a sealed letter labeled to be open if I die before Madame de Brinvilliers. Already suspicious, (laughs) a little concerning. So the letter contained a lurid confession. Uh, In 1663... Godin had begun an affair with the very married uh, Marie-Madeleine d'Aubray, Marquis, or Marquise de, Brin- de Brinvilliers, Uh and when her father found out, he had Godin imprisoned in prison- in using a French legal device called lettre de cachet, in which the king could imprison anyone for any reason, indefinitely, without trial. Uh in which, you know, other nobles, such as, you know, Marie's father, she, they could just, like, petition them for it. Like, if you asked the king nicely, he'd lock someone up for you. It's so weird that they had a revolution. I know. They weren't doing anything wrong. There was no abuse of power. None. So while in prison, Godin learned the art of poison from an Italian alchemist, and once he was released, he shared this information with the Marquess de Brinvilliers. So together, according to this... Confession. They took revenge on her father as well as her two brothers, and with their deaths, the Marquess inherited the family fortune. She separated from her husband, um, but she and Godin, they didn't exactly ride off into the sunset together. Uh, it, it seems like Godin was actually fairly paranoid that de Brinvilliers would eventually just end up poisoning him, yeah. which seems reasonable. I mean, it's kind of like when you date a cheater... That you were cheating on them, like, that thing, and then you're nervous that they're going to cheat, and it's like, well, I mean, historically, but, like, you got yourself into it. Um, there's, I will say, there's no evidence that she did. I think he died of natural causes, or, I don't remember, but it was, his death itself was not suspicious, um, but the authorities did take his confession seriously, and the Marquess was forced to flee France, um, for at least a few years, she managed to escape arrest, but the police finally tracked her down to this convent in Liege, Belgium, uh, in 1676. Can't she hunchback of Notre Dame and just claim sanctuary? That may have been a better move. Uh, so in this convent, investigators found a letter conveniently titled, My Confessions. Oh my god. <laughs> and she O.J. Simpson? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it, I'm a little suspicious of this. I have, I have not, like, I didn't do a deep dive into this. I have no, it just, I've got a hunch she may have been, if not framed, framed? justice was helped along. So it was more making a murderer, maybe. Maybe. Except he actually did murder that lady, anyways. Uh, So the letter, which featured heavily in her subsequent trial, detailed various affairs and admits to the poisoning of her father and brothers, as well as the attempted poisoning, albeit unsuccessful, of her daughter, sister, and husband. Jesus. Yeah, and like I said, it should be noted that the only evidence of her guilt at all was this confession letter, and, you know, what um, Godin had alleged. Uh, Which isn't to say she couldn't have done it, but again, like, let's let's just keep this in mind for the whole episode how shoddy most police work is today, and how uniquely terrible it had to be in the 17th century. (laughs) Um... Well, her, the ex-boyfriend, I guess, he only said that they uh, poisoned her brother and dad, right? Like, he didn't mention the other people? Yeah, it definitely sounds like someone who went and found her was looking for a promotion. Yeah. So, with the trial and subsequent execution of the Marquess, rumors began to swirl around the French court. Louis XIV himself was convinced that there was no way the Marquess was working alone. Um, oh and to have someone so high-born convicted of such a horrible crime was a scandal in and of itself. Like, Has he met any of his friends? I mean, that's kind of their whole thing, but maybe that was reasonable. And I guess, like, his assumption was then, if one member of the nobility is dabbling in poison, what was to say everyone else wasn't? <sighs> so, and then, just as if to confirm all of his deepest, darkest fears... Just a year later, a fortune teller named Magdalene de Lagrange was arrested by Parisian police for forging a will. Uh, So she panicked, as you would. Um, And in an effort to win her freedom, she hinted at a terrible secret. A vast network of poisoners all across the city in a conspiracy to kill the king. Jesus goddamn Christ. (laughs) It it does feel very witch hunty, doesn't it? Like someone... I don't know. It just seems very complicated. And, like, who... It's just all of these kings, they're like, ooh, someone's trying to kill me in a complicated way. No one's... It's hard. Like, no one gives yeah. enough of a shit. Until we did, and then all the beheadings. But Yeah, but, like, that took a lot of, like, a work. lot of people coming together. Yeah, and, you know, massive riots. They sang the song, and there was... Yeah, like, you know when it's coming. <laughs> Louis XIV appointed a special judicial commission to investigate these allegations. And this is going to, it's going to follow kind of the same template most witch hunts do. So police begin to arrest alchemists, fortune tellers, really anyone who could be reasonably suspected of dealing in dark arts of like, you know, divination, aphrodisiacs, or inheritance powered, inheritance powders. Really uh, playing it fast and loose with the word reasonably. Uh, so inheritance powers, powders, uh, was a popular name for arsenic or other poisons that people, you know, used to kill their grandpa during the True. Renaissance. So fun fact of the episode. I kind of love it. It's yeah. Is this tribunal. They called it the Chambre ardente or the burning court where trials were held in darkened halls with black drapes blocking out the sun. So the only light in the room came from flaming torches, a setting that is admittedly very unbrand for the overly dramatic court of the Sun King. I'm just picturing the vampire council from what we do in the shadows. That's exactly what I picture. Like Tilda Swinton is the head of it. <laughs> So the court did its its job. Those on trial were soon divulging their client lists and the names of high-ranking nobles were beginning to surface. So some people under pain of torture confessed to selling poisons to clients within the court itself, um, usually poisons meant to kill their rivals at Versailles. So (laughs) the royal court during this time was apparently intensely competitive. I don't think this is entirely unique to Versailles under Louis XIV, uh, but I do get the inspiration impression that like this time is especially cutthroat maybe that's just like popular for what though because he got a so like being in the king's favor it like got you a lot of social and material benefits so like courtiers wanted to turn to witchcraft and potions in order to bolster their social standing so one example of this uh is the duke de luxembourg uh he wanted to impress louis with his military prowess uh so he purchased a bunch of charms that were supposed to be Kind of like a supernatural insurance. So they guaranteed victory in battle and rendered him invulnerable to swords. Like he's purchasing magic items in a and d game. Oh, I'm sure that worked out. <sighs> sure. Okay. You know what? <laughs> we'll say the majority of French courtiers who were seeking magical assistance, at least according to various testimonies, were the women at Versailles because of course all women are scheming witches to some degree we've covered this i mean i guess it's not really i mean it's coming from two like vaguely witchy people making fun of people for not you know what we might not be the most qualified to judge people on this but that's not gonna stop us. maybe not uh, so, records from the trials indicate that at least a dozen women within the court had brought love charms and spells intended to make the king fall for them. Uh, not so coincidentally, just about the same time that Louis' relationship with his official mistress, Louise de la Valliere was petering out. So, like, he's mad because all of these women want to fuck him? Pretty much. All right, big nerd. Got it. Uh, So one of their rumored suppliers was a woman named Catherine Monvozaine, or as her clients knew her, La which is apparently um, supposed to mean like you're the neighbor or something. It was a fun little play on her last name. Uh, So La was born a poor so, of course, there's just call her a poor. She was a poor. Uh, there's very little documentation of her early life. We know she was born in Paris, probably around 1640. Uh, and in her teens, she was married to a jeweler named Antoine Monvozant. Uh They had at least three, three children, including a daughter named Marguerite, who will come back into play in just a little bit. So when Antoine's jewelry business failed, Catherine began dabbling in fortune telling and palmistry. Like, these are interests she had from a young age. They're an easy way for her to make money. She's also a natural at cold reading, which is kind of more or less the ability to pick up on cues and ask leading questions to convince someone that you couldn't possibly know that are convince someone of things you couldn't possibly know if you didn't have psychic powers. See, if she had lived, what, 400 years later, she would have just been the mentalist. Yes. So over time, she began offering other services. Uh, she would perform abortions as well as act as a midwife. Uh, and she gained a respected reputation for her discretion in these matters, which attracted a very you know high class clientele. She sounds like she's got it figured out. Her business expanded again and she began selling magical amulets, charms and powders, typically those wishing to make someone fall in love with them. Um, and at least according to trial records later, she began to sell fatal poisons. Sure. Uh, And it was the poisons that landed Lavoisin in trouble. So her name was given up in 1679 by another poisoner named Marie Boss, and she was arrested along with her daughter Marguerite and a number of associates, including a priest named Etienne Gouaborg. So initially, Lavoisin insisted that anyone who had solicited her for poisons had only ever been referred back to Marie Boss. (laughs) But while intoxicated, which apparently she was quite a bit of the time, she admitted to having sold potions and magical services to members of the royal court. You know what? Fuck them. (laughs) Good. There's going to be a lot of this in this episode, but good for her. (laughs) Seems like a smart businesswoman who knows her market. I I guess my my general feeling about aristocracy in like... That era, judging by my behavior during our witch hunts episode, is fuck them. <laughs> Most of the people she named were minor nobles who, you know, didn't really matter and received minor sentences. Uh, but Lavozan's maid alluded to higher ranking clients. If this was true, Lavozan never gave up their names. She went on trial in February of 18, or sorry, 1680 uh, and was quickly found guilty and sentenced to be burned at the stake. You know, it it strikes me kind of weird that, like, the lower-level nobles just got light sentences. Like, it seemed like they would be the ones that you'd kill, to make an example, because they didn't really matter anyways. Yeah, but also, if you start killing nobles, I think all the other nobles start to get mad. Yeah. And really, what you care about is the support of other nobles. Yeah. You really care about the people. Well, that's why you pick the, the little ones. Like, oh, if you don't, like, support my shit, then I, I will kill you. But I would be a horrible monarch, so... <laughs> Uh, So Lavazan was executed less than a week after her trial, um, though she did put up a hell of a fight. Uh, The night before her execution, uh, it said that she persuaded her guards to let her drink as much as she pleased. And it's entirely possible that she went to the execution site still drunk. God bless her. (laughs) She had to be dragged literally kicking and screaming to the stake. A priest tried to persuade her to give a final confession. She pushed him away. Uh, and when the fire was lit, she did her best to kick the burning straw away. I love this woman. This woman's a hero. <laughs> this is a big mood. Unfortunately, she was unsuccessful and eventually succumbed to the flames and died. Well, I didn't think she was fireproof. She's not Bruce Willis. Like, <laughs> uh, Interestingly, Lavoisin was never tortured over the course of her investigation or trial. Um, there was an official order that she was supposed to be tortured after the fa- after she was found guilty just to produce a confession, like, to confirm everything, I guess. Um, but according to contemporary accounts, the order was just ignored. So yeah, The French were really bad about torturing people <laughs> who would have just, like, fucking told you anyways. Yeah, it seems – I think most people's theory about it is that they didn't want her to talk because they were worried she was going to start – Naming people who mattered more, and they didn't want her to do that. Then let her go. So, the Lafazan was was dead. Her part in the affair of the poisons was far from over. Her daughter, Marguerite, uh, under the dawning realization she was probably about to uh, face the same fate as her mother, started spilling all the beans. I'm going to interject here for just a second before we get into the the super dark accusations we're about to talk about, you know, the fun stuff. Uh, Mm. These are all a result of coerced confessions from Marguerite and other associates of her mother. And it was also again, 1679. And people could just make shit up and say that someone said it. Yes. (laughs) So anyway, Marguerite no longer inclined to keep her mother's secrets, decided she was going to drop the biggest name in the entire investigation. Francois Athanay de Rochechort de Montemart. Marquess of Montespan. I'm sorry. Popularly known as Madame de Montespan, the official mistress. Russia short, Russia short. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. We're just going to go with it. She was the official mistress of the queen, of the king. No, if it was of the queen, that would be a story worth telling. <laughs> that would be a TV show. In 17th century France, and I think probably most places for most of history, uh, the only opportunity for a woman to wield any sort of real power uh, was through her romantic entanglements. You had to fuck the queen to make the rules. The politically, the most politically influential woman at court was never the queen, but the king's primary mistress, or in French, maitresse-en-titre, which in itself was actually like a semi-official position in court. Uh, so <laughs> one benefit this arrangement didn't guarantee was anything resembling fidelity. Like, the king would typically have a number of mistresses at any given time. They would be petite Um, You know, but... Montespan she was kind of a she was the Regina George of the court, uh, and she had been the king's favorite since supplanting his previous mistress uh, de, de la Valieri around sixteen sixty seven My main frame of reference for French aristocracy around this general period is Marie Antoinette, not even the historically accurate Marie Antoinette, the Sophia Coppola film Marie <laughs> Antoinette. <laughs> I will say there is a really kind of tudor style TV show called Their Side that is about Louis the Fourteenth's reign. If you ever want to get a idea for it, it's still very much Marie Antoinette, but like a hundred years earlier. Nope, we got to see if the king in this show is hot, and that will determine. Uh... <laughs> I won't say he's Jonathan Rhys Meyers hot. Well, that I mean Henry Cavill was in the Tudors, so yeah, he's definitely he was... not Henry Cavill hot. Um. This guy's fine. I I think, I don't know if I ever watched the whole first season. I watched some of the first season. It was fine. If you're in the mood for that sort of show. There is a man in it um, who kind of looks like someone polished up Jack Whitehall. So... <laughs> Got that going for you. If you're into that, but man... Oh, hey, it's that guy with the pierced nipples from Preacher. That is a reference that I don't think anyone's going to get. <laughs> Anyways. So... The king's not hot. No. Uh, so it was De La, de la Valieri, ironically enough, uh, that introduced the king to Madame de Montespan in the first place. So while she was heavily pregnant with Louis's daughter, uh, De La Valieri had asked Montespan to help her entertain the king during their private dinners. Uh, and then, of course, The two began an intimate relationship. Uh, For some time, he even placed Montespan and and Della Valieri in connecting rooms, just so he could visit both without kind of revealing to anybody else that he had a new mistress. I mean, smart, but also she didn't specify what kind of entertainment that her friend was supposed to provide. I mean, I assume she meant conversation, but... You have to be specific. What do you expect? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to blame the last mistress for her husband, or not her husband, but for her boyfriend cheating on her. The man that she was helping cheat on his wife (laughs) (laughs) for cheating on her. I mean, it was just kind of, that was what everybody did when you were the king of France. What was the queen doing this whole time? Pumping out babies. That was her only job. (laughs) Nothing else mattered. She cemented an alliance, and she popped out a couple of kids, and after that, the queen did not matter. Man, I want to finish the great now. (laughs) That queen actually did shit. So Montespan enjoyed enjoyed at least a decade as the most influential woman at Versailles. With the king, she had seven children, three of which survived long enough to eventually be legitimized. Some pretty good odds. So some even called her the true queen of France, because again, (laughs) actually has political power. That's the part that, like, at no point was the queen, like, "Um, I had to put on the big dress and do the whole ceremony. I, like, had to come over here from another fucking country. I had to do all the work but have none of the fun. Yeah, like, that sucks. No motivation to marry a king. (laughs) Unfortunately for Madame de Montespan, the affair of the poison spelled the beginning of the end for her reign as official mistress. Uh, So, Marguerite's accusations were... Truly shocking. So according to her testimony, Montespan had come to Lavoisin in 1667, uh, about the same time her relationship with Louis was beginning. And Lavoisin had sent her back to Versailles with a potion to use on the king. Um, whether the potion was some sort of like aphrodisiac or the king was just like kind of a dog, and Montespan was there. Um, she did take her place as maîtresse saint shortly after. Uh, and Lavoisin's services became incredibly popular amongst the nobles. See, what they're not telling you is that it wasn't a potion. It was just a bottle of Everclear, and that'll loosen <laughs> anybody <laughs> that'll get up. get the job done. Also, I like Marguerite's whole, like, well, you killed my mom. So I'm just going to blow all your shit up, whether it's true or not. <laughs> I'm just going to fucking do it. So... <laughs> This would not be Montespan's last visit to Lavoisin. So according to a confession by that priest, Etienne Guiborg, uh, who had been arrested alongside the Mont-Vazans, uh, Montespan continued to come to Lavoisin whenever the king's eye began to wander, which I imagine was frequently <laughs> seeking satanic intervention for her relationship. Satan has better things to do. We've talked about this before. He is a busy entity. So on these occasions, uh, Vasan would arrange a black mass over which Gwiborg would preside. So Montespan would lie on an altar, draped in bl- the altar was draped in black. She was face up and completely naked. Of course. <laughs> As you do. Uh, Gwiborg, according to his own claims, would recite a blasphemous version of the liturgy and pray to Satan for the king's love, presumably on Montespan's behalf. Then, Lavoisin would bring an infant to the altar and she would slash its throat and let the blood pour into a chalice, which then would overflow onto Montespan herself. <sighs> Babies are really hard to source. <sighs> uh, some accounts go even so far as to say that Lavoisin and Montespan then took the remains of the infant and crushed it, Robert Eggers' The Witch style. Um, and then that Montespan would then mix the remains into the king's food. Sure. I- <sighs> So fucking stupid. Uh, as you mentioned, <laughs> where La Vosan was getting all of these babies is not entirely clear. Uh, though, I mean, given her role as an abortionist and midwife, maybe that didn't seem so far-fetched. Um, it, there, mm, yeah. there are some rumors that police uncovered the remains of some 2,500 infants in their garden. Uh, there's actually no real evidence that the garden was ever searched. But, you know, you'll see that pop up. Uh, <sighs> more likely, if not... <laughs> anything resembling a black mass ever did take place. They probably weren't nearly as elaborate as Guiborg made them out to be. So Mar- Marguerite also testified that, you know, she testified that the black masses happened, but that the altar was kind of just like a mattress laid across some chairs. And instead of sacrificing a newborn infant, Lavozan simply cut the throat of some pigeons. That's a big jump from a fucking pigeon, like not even a chicken or like a pig. Well, yeah, she kept the room dark. I'm sure she swaddled it. I don't know. There was a lot of, I think, like stage kind of magic going on. there. Yeah, that's what I mean. If you're going to do like black mass and shit, it's just about atmosphere. You're putting on a show. Like, it's the same thing as like people in the spiritualist era that would go on, go to seances and stuff. You got to put on a show and that's what makes it convincing. It's like Roman Catholic mass. (laughs) 100%. (laughs) that is dramatic as fuck like they're not actually drinking blood it's just shitty wine (laughs) uh so with montespan's name drawn into the investigation authorities probably at louis request uh quickly began to backpedal on the whole thing uh they started burning court records and um so they either those still on trial they either just went ahead and executed them or they like imprisoned them so, the court itself was abolished in 1682, and all told, around 36 people were executed, and over 400 were imprisoned, some for the rest of their life. Uh, despite Louis's efforts to minimize the scandal, rumors of Montespan's involvement still reached the ears of the court, and her relationship with Louis never really re- recovered. He did continue to visit her for some time to save face, but by 1691, she had, like her predecessor before her, retired to a convent in Paris. Uh They like the kind of end of that reminds me a lot of the witch hunt episode where that little boy accused a lady and then saw who it was and the lady was like, "Say that again." (laughs) I'm sorry, you said what? (laughs) I didn't just hear you say what I thought you said, did I? I'm pretty sure that's how McCarthyism died out too. They were like, "Oh fuck, we accused this guy." (laughs) (laughs) Ah shit, not that guy. Take it all down. We're done. Well, that was the affair of the poisons quite it's so stupid (laughs) i love stories like this like that seems weird to say people died it was legitimately horrible but it's just it's such a story of story you know it's just they got so far up their own ass (laughs) being so (laughs) stupid and i understand that it was the 1600s and we didn't have like as much of an understanding about stuff as we do now but it is very easy to just not think that everyone's trying to kill you (laughs) so i've got one more that i would i would wager is even better than the affair of the poisons oh good uh and that is the affair of the diamond necklace did the old lady throw it into the ocean from the side of the the titanic okay (laughs) do you want to do the spiel or (laughs) no there was room on the big door (laughs) for two people it wasn't actually a door it was a piece of whatever Hmm. well there were buoyancy issues emily let's not get into it (laughs) so on its face that's implying that that leonardo dicaprio weighs enough it's not about weight it's about water displacement (laughs) then get on the back of the door it was a big piece of wood sarah (laughs) (laughs) they literally show a scene where he tries to climb onto the door and the door flips over because he can't do it right he couldn't find another door? Apparently not. I'm just saying James Cameron didn't think about it long enough. (laughs) We're not relitigating Titanic. Oh no, that's another mini. (laughs) We'll have a whole mini on that. Just us fighting about the movie Titanic. I hate James Cameron, but I love Titanic. Let's release that as a bonus episode. It's just not not a commentary on Titanic. Just us yelling and arguing about Titanic. I'm sure people would love that. I was going to say we could do a a four-part series where we just <laughs> do commentary on Titanic. <laughs> Most of it's going to be silence, and we'll release it on two VHS tapes that you have to buy and load into your podcast player. <laughs> Hopefully, you have the little Corvette that rewinds the tapes, <laughs> or it doesn't work. This podcast is so stupid. <laughs> Please tell me about the necklace. So, all right. So, on did its Billy face. Zane have it? No, there's no Billy Zane. There is some Jason Schwartzman and uh, Kristen Dunst. I mean, I'll take it. Uh, On its face, the affair of the diamond necklace is kind of silly. Um, It's also might be a contributing factor in Marie Antoinette losing her head. So, stakes. I feel like there were a lot of factors in Marie Antoinette losing her head, a lot of which weren't really her fault. (laughs) None of which were her fault. She, again, remember what we were saying? Like, the Queen's job... Was to get married, cement a political alliance, and then pop out some kids. And then eat cake, I guess. She has no political influence. She has no real power. She just got to sit there and look pretty and spend money. That was her job. That actually doesn't sound too bad other than the kids thing. Yeah. (laughs) I guess you don't even have to take care of them after they... not a bad gig and you don't even have to (laughs) fuck the king after a while no eventually he just kind of gives up and goes fuck someone else yeah (laughs) i'm more of a robert schwartzman fan jason's great but i do have a special place in my heart for jason schwartzman specifically because of the movie marie antoinette but you know robert schwartzman was in rooney so he he wins favorite sibling they're both related to Nicolas cage i mean everybody is i mean yeah they're all coppolas yeah So our story begins in seventeen seventy two, which is a full two years before Marie Antoinette even became queen. So Louis XV, who was Louis the Fourteenth's great grandson and successor, and another perpetual horn dog, um decided he was gonna gift his own official mistress, Madame de Berry, with an absolutely bonkers diamond necklace. For context, Rip Torn and Asia Argento. <laughs> yes. Just one second. I had to make sure I have a picture ready to send you because you need a to see torn of the necklace, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've seen Titanic. I know what the heart of the ocean. <laughs> this would make the heart of the ocean dump its butt. <laughs> <laughs> That's the quote for the episode. Yes, it is. Let me write that down real quick. Please overlay it over a picture of the necklace so it doesn't come out too far out of context. To this end. Louis commissioned Parisian jewelers Charles Auguste Bomer and Paul Bessange, who at his request began to craft a necklace at the estimated cost of 2 million livres, which is the equivalent of 15 million dollars U.S. today. Just to have that money lying around for jewelry she's never gonna wear because it's too heavy. For your side chick. Well, clearly she's more important. So like that makes sense uh, the necklace was quite something and I've just sent you a picture uh, it contained nearly 650 diamonds and weighed nearly 2,800 carats and it was described as a row of 17 glorious diamonds a three, three-wreathed festoon and pendants enough to encircle it so for, for all of you who can't go look at the Instagram right now like where the heart of the ocean is just a big fucking like jewel on our chain this is like this is a whole thing <laughs> There are levels to this necklace. (laughs) Actually, it doesn't look like it would be super heavy. It looks like it would be very cold. I don't know, like... I mean, I know, like, the dresses give you quite a amount of, like, decolletage, but, like, where would it go? I mean, if you got a busty enough lady, they could rest it on there. Uh, If not, then you'd have a very sore back of the neck. Yes. Give... We're just... As a reminder, at the time, it's 18th century France, so like sourcing enough diamonds to make this thing took Bomer and Bassage, Bassange several years. Like, so long, in fact, that by the time the necklace was finished, Louis XV was dead, <laughs> and his grandson, Louis XVI, had banished Du Barry from court. So, <laughs> here's the thing uh, Louis XV hadn't exactly paid for the necklace in advance. And that left Balmer and Bassange with this insanely elaborate and expensive diamond necklace that literally nobody in the world but the King of France could ever afford to buy. They can't disassemble it and turn it into smaller jewelry? Put a pin in that. So in 1778, they offered it to Louis XVI, hoping that he would buy it as a gift for his wife, Marie Antoinette. Uh, Marie Antoinette demurely turned it down, insisting to her husband that they had more need for chips than for necklaces. Well, she's not wrong. Uh, and this is likely true. It's also true that Marie Antoinette absolutely loathed Madame du Barry and probably wasn't about to wear her hand-me-downs. Um, there is also some speculation that she probably thought it was ugly as sin. <laughs> and wouldn't have worn it anyway. Well, that's a little judgmental, but... The jewelers tried again after the birth of the Dauphin, Louis-Joseph, in 1781, but again, the queen declined. Enter Jean de Lamotte. I'm I'm not going to say she's the hero of this story. No one's a hero in this story. It's rich people being (laughs) mad about a necklace, Sarah. By the time it's over, you're probably going to want to say good for her. It's one of those stories. Jeanne was actually born the descendant of French royalty. Her father was a direct descendant of an illegitimate son of King Henry II. Uh, But he was also an alcoholic, and Jeanne and her siblings grew up in poverty. Um, How she managed to escape said poverty isn't entirely clear. Uh, By most accounts, someone wealthy entitled... Found out that she was descended from royalty and took it upon themselves to care for her and her siblings. So, thanks to her royal blood, she was given a small stipend and an education and eventually managed to secure a marriage to the Count de la Motte, whose claim to nobility was kind of dubious, but he had it. So, he had that big applesauce and juice fortune that he was riding on. <laughs> there was also that. That always helps. <laughs> Actually, no, it was not a good time for applesauce. So, despite his title, uh, the Count de la Motte. Not actually very wealthy. So, Jean apparently tried to approach Marie Antoinette to ask for, you know, maybe a slightly more generous pension. Uh, Jean, but Jean's reputation was far from respectable, and the Queen declined to meet with her. So... <laughs> Jean began. People suck. <laughs> Jean began a series of affairs, including one with Cardinal Prince Louis de Rohan, a former French ambassador to the court of Vienna, which was also the court of Marie Antoinette's mother, the Holy Roman Empress Maria Theresa. Did you say cardinal? Like of the church? Yes. Yes, of the church. They could fuck back then, or was that like a. It's 1776. Whatever. Yeah, you can fuck that. When did priests not start not being able to? You know what? That's also I, no, that's not a mini. I actually don't want to know. But I mean, he was supposed to be celibate. Yes. Okay. But that's he was what also I was wondering. a cardinal and rich. <laughs> so, I mean, not going to yeah. happen. French. I mean, that doesn't he, happen today. Or, no. no, it doesn't not. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, it doesn't not happen today. You hey, remember how Andrew Scott we've, exists? I was going to say, we've seen Fleabag. I'm sad again. Let's not think about Fleabag. So. Oh, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> uh, cool. Don't, don't picture him as Andrew Scott, because you're not going to be happy with that decision. It's too late. <laughs> Coincidentally enough, Cardinal Rohan was also on the outs with the queen for various reasons. Uh reportedly he, he had spread rumors about Marie Antoinette's behavior to her mother, which was a dick move and <laughs> like all the men in the story, apparently he was also a perpetual horn dog and that didn't win him any points either. So, on the advice of her mother, Marie Antoinette had cut Rohan out of her circle entirely. I just By imagined the- him like not getting invited to her little tea and cake parties. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> He's just the only dude. He's like the, t- the token gay. <laughs> uh, by the time he met Jean de Lamotte, the Cardinal was desperate to get back into the Queen's favor. And when Jean learned of this, she began to plot what I would consider to be the greatest scam, scam in history. Like a heist? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Jean convinced Rohan that she, in fact, was one of Marie Antoinette's closest friends. And if he so wished, she would be more than happy to arrange for him to correspond with her. Rohan jumped at the chance and began to write Marie Antoinette a series of letters that, of course, never actually made it anywhere near the queen. Uh, Jeanne answered the letters herself with the help of another one of her boyfriends, a forger by the name of Roteau de Villette. He sounds hot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the letters were so good that she managed to talk the cardinal into sending her enough money, all for charitable causes, of course, uh, that she was able to buy herself a house. I thought you were going to say the necklace and I'd be like, that is a fiscally irresponsible cardinal. I mean, Put still a is, in that, but. So, which isn't to say he never got suspicious. So, the letters Rohan received were so warm and caring that he at some point became convinced that the queen mm-hmm. was in fact in love with him. At the <sighs> same time, she never acknowledged him in public. And when Rohan raised this point in one of his letters, Jean arranged for a nighttime meeting in the, gar- in the gardens of Versailles. Isn't this the plot of like an 80s or 90s teen movie? <laughs> I hope so. If not, let's write one. With the actual queen completely oblivious and entirely inaccessible, regardless, uh, Jean instead hired a sex worker named Nicole Le Guay d'Oliva, uh, who was apparently well known in Paris for her resemblance to Marie Antoinette. Or at Ooh, least she must have know, made bank on that one. <laughs> I mean, at the most, she was close enough to pass for Marie Antoinette in the dark. So, she, uh, Rohan offered her a rose, she accepted, and assured him that all was forgiven. Uh, and so convinced was the cardinal by this meeting, he agreed to help the queen with a secret favor that she had been alluding to. Man, he oldie bachelorette was fucking wild. So, Jean had gotten wind of Jubari's diamond necklace... And though, and through this correspondence, she, as Marie Antoinette confessed that she secretly did desire to purchase the necklace because of the country's dire financial situation. she didn't dare ask the king to purchase it for her, so Rohan agreed to act as an intermediary, graciously oh fronting the money to purchase the necklace in installments oh um, from Bomer and Bassange, and the queen then paid promised to pay him back. Oh my God. <laughs> Roland even presented the jewelers with a letter from the queen signed Marie-Antoinette de France, uh, and no one apparently caught on. The French royal signed with only their given name. I was going to say, that seems like a made-up, like when a kindergartner signs their, like, permission slip with mom. Yeah, it's... It sounds made up, and also, like, I maybe wouldn't have known that, but, like, Cardinal Rohan grew up in the court and presumably would have known it, which kind of came back to him a bit later. But no one, no one seemed to notice it this time or cared. So, with the he's necklace successfully... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, you know, he's clearly a couple mirrors short of a Versailles. <laughs> so, with the necklace successfully purchased, Rohan brought the necklace to Jean's house, where he passed it off to a man who he believed or assumed was one of the Queen's valets. Instead, Jeanne de Lamotte passed the necklace off to her husband, and together they picked it apart and, one by one, began selling each diamond individually in London. That's just the plot of Ocean's (laughs) Eleven. No, Ocean's (laughs) Thirteen. the one with the women um, I will say it was a masterful con it was unfortunately not entirely successful so when Mo- no money was ever paid to Rohan and he missed his first installment with Bomer and Basange they complained directly to Marie Antoinette who <laughs> 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 could do nothing but admit that she had absolutely no knowledge of any of this Cardinal Rohan was ar- arrested in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, and Jean de Lamont was arrested three days later. Um, eventually, they'd also arrest Nicole de Liva, who was the sex worker, um, and Roteau de Valette, who confessed that he had forged the letters from the Queen that Jean had passed on to Rohan. Leave Nicole out of this. <laughs> she was just doing a job. Fortunately for her, she was acquitted. They didn't think she had any part in this conspiracy other than, I guess, being paid to act like Marie Antoinette for 20 minutes. Um. Oh, no, her only crime was being hot. The Cardinal was put on trial. I think, again, that signature thing, like I said, like there was some speculation that he should have known and therefore may have been on it. Uh, but it, he was uh, eventually acquitted. Uh, but he was exiled to his property in southern France, which probably wasn't too bad of a punishment. But I wish this had been in the movie. Also, I just looked up a picture of this Cardinal. And yeah, he's not Andrew Scott. I'm sorry. <laughs> His head is so smooth, but his hair is also there, too. It looks like his hair just, like, his wig just kind of slipped back and he didn't fix it before they did his portrait. <laughs> Which is weird, because those take a long time. Do you think he would have felt the breeze on his nine head? Uh, so the forger Riteau de Villette was found guilty of forgery and exiled, and Jean Delamont, despite all her scheming, could not escape a guilty verdict. She was sentenced to be whipped, branded, and imprisoned for life, only to escape prison... Uh, disguised as a boy. In 1789, she published her memoirs, blamed Marie Antoinette for the whole thing. Uh, But unfortunately, she died two years later in 1791 after falling out a window to try and escape debt collectors. I I kind of love this woman. (laughs) She is a bad bitch, and I appreciate her. She is a hot mess express, but I really do look up to her. We should all live our lives as if we are Jean de though maybe don't swindle people. (laughs) She did get the necklace like that worked. It just because the fucking cardinal couldn't pay his shit on time. (laughs) It's not her fault. Marie Antoinette herself, despite being oblivious to this whole mess, did not escape the scandal unscathed. So many historians consider this affair of the diamond necklace scandal as the event which began to turn public opinion against the Queen. So it would get much worse. She had literally nothing to do with it. Literally nothing. Um, but many believed she had actually been part of it, that she was trying to use Jean de Motte to take revenge on the Cardinal. What? Um, no, nope. <laughs> <laughs> No, there's no... She was not. Uh, Regardless of the truth, her reputation never recovered, and in 1793, she would face the guillotine. But that, of course, is a whole other episode. I think uh, it was just people trying to find a reason to be mad at her. Oh, I mean, it's very obvious, but she clearly didn't do anything. Uh. What are you saying, Emily? We've never done that to women. (sighs) Never. It's not like everyone spent, like, four years hating Anne Hathaway for question mark? For... I think because she did really good in a movie and won an Oscar and was happy about it. Maybe. I'm not quite clear on why. I'm also not clear as to why that was ever thing. I always liked Anne Hathaway. Yeah, I also don't know why we had a thing against Kristen Stewart for a while. It's not her (laughs) fault Twilight was bad. Like I said, we've never done that to women. Never done that to women. That's the French for you. We'll do a Marie Antoinette episode someday. I don't know if I can handle just the oppressive stupidity of French men from that time period, though. (laughs) Yeah, that was kind of my overwhelming, just as I kept writing this episode, I was like, wow, this lady is so fascinating. She's got, like, such an interesting history, and she, like, was very, you know, uh, the blanking on the word here very industrious very like a smart thinker i thought of this many times for many different women in the story although to and be fair, every time as the man I was like this guy is a paranoid dick bag. well to be to be fair um jean of of the applesauce uh dynasty <laughs> catfished not andrew scott it was in fact a brilliant catfish the first catfish, straight maybe. up like that's it was the first catfish no, I'm sure you could get away with that shit a lot more oh, back yeah. in the day. Especially when everything was by letter. Yeah, you think he would have, like, wanted to have a meeting before he bought a $15 million necklace? I mean, technically he did. <laughs> or he thought he did. Oh, that's true. I mean, maybe in, like, good good lighting. <laughs> Meet them in the daytime. That's all I'll maybe say. Maybe he should have just hooked up with the sex worker. Like, she looked like Marie Antoinette. Like, that's what he wanted. Yeah, you'd think. Probably wouldn't have cared, really, about the difference, knowing men. <laughs> Jesus hung out with sex workers all the time. It would be very Christian of him. Jesus Christ. I guess I just have to sit with uh, how ridiculous this is. I think the affair of the diamond necklace might be one of just, like, my favorite historical stories. That up. one it's is just is fun. From beginning to end, just really over the top. That one is full Mel Brooks movie. The Affair yeah. of the Poisons was a lot of just like, why do you think people care about you so much? <laughs> affair of the Poisons is fun in kind of like a satanic panic sort of way. But generally speaking, yeah, I think Affair of the Diamonds wins out. Or Diamond Necklace wins out. It was like the, the king in the Witch Hunt episode who was like, these women cursed the boat. And it was like, <laughs> no one cares. It's like we've said, no one cares about your penis. No one. We just need to get that on a shirt, I guess. <laughs> Maybe, like, with some, like, nice flowers <laughs> around it. Maybe in a mug. Oh, a mug, yes. No one cares about your penis. Well, thank you, Sarah. That was, I feel a little bit more alive. <laughs> Thanks. And I definitely feel smarter. That's the. That's a fun story you can uh, pull out at your next cocktail party. We have so many of those. That's what this show is, is based upon. <laughs> It's weird trivia to tell your friends who aren't as weird as you. You're welcome. All right, guys. If you have a favorite French affair, you can tell <laughs> us on Twitter and Instagram at Afternoonified. You can also email us at uh, afternunifiedpod at com. There's also getafternoonified, uh, dot com where you can buy merch, uh, maybe eventually, and no one cares about your penis mug. <laughs> uh, we'll work on it. Um. Remember to rate, subscribe, review, and all that. And boop, 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 Sarah and I did a guest spot on. Oh yeah, uh, the Three Links Oddcast, which is a um, Oddfellows podcast uh, to the nicest guys. they uh, yeah, answered a lot of questions about skeleton sourcing. <laughs> more questions, honestly, than I thought we were going to get answers to, which was really great. They were so gracious and so informative. Like if you were at all. Like if the Oddfellows episode piqued your interest at all, please go listen to their podcast because it's really great. Yes. um, Yes, they were. They were wonderful. And um, when I get around to editing it, we'll do a a special mini that's kind of like a compilation of our our questions being answered. But I highly encourage you to go check out the the whole thing. Um, I only said a couple stupid things. (laughs) (laughs) Just just one or two. Just a handful where it's usually a basket. And I'm very proud of myself. So. uh, See you next time. Bye. We love you. Bye. Do you love the Bachelor franchise? Ah, the romance, the adventure, the drama. But do you also kind of hate the Bachelor franchise? Oh, yeah. The sexism, the racism. The intense heteronormativity of it all. Here at Date Card, we're just two obsessed queerdos who love to dissect, talk shit, and get blocked by problematic contestants. Yeah, we're here for the good, the bad, and the chad of it all. You can find us on SoBlow Media, iTunes, and Spotify. Please accept this, Rose! For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBlowMedia.com. This, this is. As above, so below.